everyone and welcome to another chapter of Design Fever. My name is Anna and I'm Clau. And today we're going to be discussing the chapter 19 of the book of graphic design of Mexican history. In previous chapters, we knew that the first wave of modern design was imported by talented European immigrants. They introduced Americans to the avant-garde movement. Americans adapted these concepts pragmatically and in a more intuitive way, taking less of a formal approach to design. New York City served as a cultural incubator during the middle of the 20th century. Unique aspects of American culture like capitalistic values, diverse ethnic heritage, and limited artistic traditions shaped American design. In a competitive field, technique novelty and original concepts are highly valued and praised. One of the big names of all times in the design world is Paul Rand. He was born in 1914. He initiated the approach to modern graphic design. At age 23, he began his first phase of his design career working as an editorial designer for magazines. His understanding and playfulness with shapes, forms, and contrast, focusing on the symbolism and communication content, got him to become one of the most influential graphic designers until this day. From 1941 until 1954, Paul Rand applied his design approach at the Weintraub Advertising Agency where he was leader of several advertising campaigns. One of his, his most famous work is with Orbach's department store, where he integrates photography, drawing, and logo. In 1944, Lustig became the design research director of Luke magazine and was asked by jo Joseph Albers to help develop a graduate design program at Yale. Bradbury Thompson emerged as one of the most influential designers post-war. He worked in New York City as an art director and opened the range of design possibilities. He used bold and large geometric shapes that brought graphic. Something incredible about Rand is that he understood the value of universal sign and symbols and used them as tools for conveying ideas. He engaged with the audience with his interpretation and reimagining of something ordinary and making it extraordinary. Also, a huge characteristic of his work was his love for contrast through color, shapes, textures, and more. He was always juxtaposing them. Moreover, I really like that he defines design as the integration of form and function for effective communication. I totally agree with that. The chapter also mentions Alvin Lustig. He was a designer who also used a great amount of symbols in his work, but this were subjective and private. He seemed to capture the essence of the content through them. Symbolism power to the design. During the 60s and 70s, Thompson went into a classic, harmonious direction with book editorial format design, focusing on readability, flow, and harmony, inspiring several generations of calligraphic brush drawing bold and simple shapes, with a strong sense of form, vitality, and freshness. Side note, something we see in this chapter a lot is the ability to reduce complex content into elemental, powerful graphic symbols. Young graphic designers. Design sensibilities were carried from New York to Los Angeles by Saul Bass. He moved to California and opened his own studio. Bass took inspiration from Paul Rand, a symmetrical balance and use of shapes. Bass made his designs in a single predominant image to express and communicate ideas, giving his designs a very powerful graphic power. Did you guys know Saul Bass invented the animated film titles? How awesome is he? So that was on 1955 with the film The Man with the Golden Arm. 
It's very impressive how he started this art form that now is present in almost every movie. Then we have George Cherney, a designer now known for his ability to seize the essence of the subject and express it in striking simple terms. He experimented with type, photography. Also something important about this chapter is the mention of Yale University. This school of arts was directed by Joseph Albers in 1950. Along Alvin Ainsman and based on the Bauhaus, created a serious program that studied type formally in the classic way. As a result of Ainsman's vision for over half a century, leading graphic designers, photographers, printmakers, and innovative artists thought in Yale graphic design program. The program contributed to the advancement of professional instruction on graphic design. Another important name in this chapter is Norman Ives. With his typographic work and expressive use of letters, he reshaped the way of using type in an interesting way using mostly collage. So we move on to an editorial revolution. According to the book, during the 40s, there were few well-designed magazines. Some of them were Vogue, Fortune, and Harper's Bazaar. This was thanks to their art directors. In this part of the chapter, they finally mention a woman graphic designer, C.P. Pinellis. She worked as an art director of many magazines and was the first woman admitted to the New York Art Directors Club. She commissioned illustrations from painters which was unusual back then and broke with the conventional imagery. In the chapter, we are only shown one example of her work, which is sad because when I search more about her, I think her magazine covers are very striking and charming. The use of photography to capture women who look beautiful and powerful at the same time, I think is wonderful. It is also mentioned the work of Otto Storch, an assistant art director of Better Living magazine. He started to play with typography, unified with photography, headlines often became part of illustrations and more. Something that stuck with me was his philosophy, I think that's important to know, that idea, copy, art, and typography should always be together in editorial design. So after talking a lot about magazines and spread, we can see that in 1960, television eroded magazines' advertising revenue and took control over popular entertainment. Also, public concerns like Vietnam War, environmental problems, and the fight for the rights of minorities and women demanded a change in information content. Editorial design changed, longer text and more quality of content and less visual treatment was demanded. Consistent and working layout and standards type grid became norms. Peter Palazzo, a design editor, was acclaimed for his three-column grid, consistent size, and style. During the 60s, American graphic design slowly started to become a national profession. Non-print advertising also flourished in the middle of the 20th century. After World War II, television became the second largest medium after newspaper. American typographic expressionism began in New York between the 50s and the 60s. Jenny Federico was one of the first designers to use shapes of type as images to include in the design, as we can see in the picture 1946. So, Herb Lubling entered the chat. He's an incredible designer and typographical genius. He used letters as both visual form and message. He experimented a lot with letter forms. They were joined, overlapped, and enlarged. His designs were fun and intriguing, which engaged the reader even more. He was and is still a very admired designer, which is why he inspired many others to experiment and try new things with type. 
1967, Ginsburg launched Fact Magazine, and for budget restraints, he decided to hire a single illustrator for a flat free. Instead of a huge team of photographers, Ginsburg and Lubalink closed the decade with the avant-garde square format and gained traction by publishing visual essays and reportage about the social concerns of civil rights movement, women's liberation, and sexual revolution. So, moving away from type, there was this new advertising born. We transitioned from a very repetitive and exaggerated type of publicity to a more clever and interesting one. This all started with the Doyle Dane Burnbatch Advertising Agency. They excel with their team dynamics and internal communication. Their concept, copy, and art were all discussed together, and this was evident in the finished product. They also produced their ads with mostly only the necessary, a striking image, a headline, and a copy. A great example is the ad that they have for Volkswagen, the Beetle one. Yes, with a really like high contrast and like small type and yeah, I think that one is very clever and very fun and started this whole new approach to advertisement. Well, to end the chapter, the New York School started thanks to the influences of the European modernism and kept going and evolving thanks to the economic and technological expansion. And it is awesome to know that many of the revolutionaries of this movement still design until the 90s and still influence design today. Well, everyone, um, that's another chapter of Design Fever. I hope you liked it and you learned something about the New York uh, design style. We will see you next week with another chapter. Bye. Bye.